From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The official hurricane season lasts from June 1st to November 30th, with the majority of storms occurring in the eight-week period from mid-August to late October. So now. Forecasters predict a more active hurricane season now that El Nino has ended, with as many as 10 to 17 possible named storms. Getting accurate models of a hurricane's path plays a big part in coastal communities' ability to stay safe. Researchers at the University of Georgia aim to improve precision by launching underwater autonomous robots, or gliders, to collect data from the briny deep. Dr. Catherine Edwards is a researcher at the UGA Skidway Institute of Oceanography, and she joins us from Savannah to share some insights on how they work and what role they play in predicting predicting rather these potentially deadly storms. Catherine, good morning. Good morning. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Paint a picture for us, if you would. How would you describe the look of these underwater gliders? So these gliders, they sort of look like yellow torpedoes. They're about person size, about five and a half feet long and about 10 inches in diameter. And they have wings, but from the outside looking at them, you couldn't necessarily tell how they move. They don't have propellers like a lot of other autonomous underwater vehicles and other robots. So how do they move? They move by changing their buoyancy and center of gravity. So you have them so that they're neutral in the water, not sinking and not floating. They take in a small volume of water so they're heavy and then move an internal battery forward about an inch so it's pointed down. Then it uses gravity to move towards the bottom with wings that give it lift for horizontal and controlled flight. So it sounds like clever little things. Oh, yeah. And on the way back up, they use buoyancy the same way. They become light, they point up, and they use buoyancy to float to the surface. Now, is somebody actually driving them or controlling where they go? No, they're completely autonomous. They are autonomous and untethered. We deploy them off of the ships, and they have the capability to operate on their own for weeks or even months at a time. We do have them call in to servers in our lab about every four to six hours, and that gives them a chance to report their position, uh, report their sensor health and how they're doing on their mission, um, and then also having a chance to send us data that it's been collecting over that last four to six hours. Uh, and then most importantly, it's a chance to potentially adapt the flow, adapt uh, the, the programming of, of the vehicle to perhaps aim it towards different waypoints or change the kind of mission sampling that it's running. So the sensors, what, what kinds of things are being measured? So the the important things for the glider re- for the hurricane research are we we measure um, temperature and salinity using a conductivity temperature and depth sensor, um, and then that gives us subsurface temperatures and salinities and therefore uh, the seawater density from the surface down to about three meters above the bottom. The glider is also equipped with a dissolved oxygen sensor and then fluorometers that tell us how much chlorophyll and how much organic matter is in the water, as well as how much stuff is scattering light inside it. Um, That helps us uh, assess um, how much chlorophyll, how much marine algae is in the water and where, 
how much oxygen is associated with it and helps us connect physical and biological patterns. So we know that warm water is associated with hurricanes, so I understand temperature, but the measurement of algae and other particles in the water, that's about what, churn, direction? Well, sometimes it, it sometimes it shows the response to a hurricane. Um, after a hurricane passes through, you can sometimes see this in in sea surface temperature maps from satellite measurements. You see the warm ocean where the the hurricane has gone through, but it it leaves a cold wake behind, sort of like a slug trail of cold water that it brings up from the 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 cold nutrient rich water down and brings it up into the, the photic zone, uh, then those nutrients are used by the algae and you get a little bit of a phytoplankton response in the surface water uh, in that cold wake of a hurricane. So these gliders help us understand the temperature and the full three-dimensional heat that is available in the water column to feed tropical storms and hurricanes. Um, and also we can use them to understand a little bit about the response behind the hurricanes. Okay, so that's afterwards. That's in the path of a hurricane. But these models predicting the paths of hurricanes, let's say the ones that we see on TV, they've gotten a lot more accurate in the past few decades. How are these underwater gliders improving those predictions? Well, sure, you're right. They've gotten a lot better. And, and the thing they've gotten a lot better on is predicting their path. And so we now know better where they're going, and we have more notice for where they end up going. But we have the, the, the hurricane modeling community has been um, improving more slowly in terms of intensity error, in terms of um, how strong the storm will be when it makes landfall. Uh, and so uh, as part of a large project funded by NOAA, uh, I'm uh, the head of a regional group using gliders to understand the three-dimensional heat signal inside the, inside the ocean that's available as heat to potentially fuel hurricanes and better understand that, that ocean-atmospheric inter, interaction that can ultimately give rise to hurricane intensity. Yeah, let's let's actually get a real world example of that. Part of what makes hurricanes so dangerous is quick changes in intensity and direction. So storms like Hurricane Michael or Florence, for example. Um, can you explain how this would help predict those patterns with more accuracy? Absolutely. So since since gliders. Uh, fly vertically within the water column. We get the sea surface temperatures like we see on satellite, but we also see the, the temperature down below. So if you've got warm temperatures near the surface and cooler temperatures down below, as the hurricane begins to approach, mixing will happen as the winds begin to stir up the water. And suddenly, you don't have that same amount of heat available at the surface available for the storm to take up. So um, uh, collaborators of mine at Rutgers and other universities have looked at this uh, for Hurricane Irene uh, off of uh, the U.S. East Coast several years ago. Um, and then Florence looks very similar in that some of the water as the hurricane approached was very heavily stratified. There was a big temperature difference between surface and bottom. And one of the gliders that we deployed off of North Carolina uh, near the storm track of Florence showed that there was about a 14 degree Celsius temperature change between surface and bottom. Mm -hmm. 
when those data come to my lab, we contribute them to national and international databases of subsurface temperature data so that ocean modelers can take them into their ocean models. These are ocean models like the ones that the Navy uses as um, national ocean models that are used as kind of that bottom half of what's connected to hurricane models above. So we were able to show last year that by having the glider in the water near the hurricane, we were able to correct a 14-degree Celsius temperature change that wasn't represented in the Navy models. And that ocean connection then has a chance to propagate into the hurricane models. Yay, gliders. Yay, gliders indeed. <laughs> I'm speaking with the researcher Catherine Edwards about the fleet of underwater gliders out of UGA's Skidaway Institute of Oceanography, helping to more predict with more precision a path and intensity of hurricanes, among other things. How many gliders are in the fleet? Um, in my lab, Skidaway owns uh, one glider, and we have another on a long-term loan from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And then we operate a third glider owned by a regional association funded by NOAA called the Southeast Coastal Ocean Observing Regional Association, Socorro. So those are the three gliders we operate. Uh, but then our regional hurricane gliders project is a consortium of glider operators and Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. And among our, our groups, we have uh, between six and eight gliders at our disposal. Uh, and we're funded this year to put two gliders, two or three gliders into the water during hurricane season to be able to maximize the impact for our region. Now, these gliders really have to be ready for anything. I read one of them actually had a run-in with a shark. It did. And it's actually more common than you would think. When the gliders are at the surface transmitting data, they're really vulnerable to all kinds of danger from ship strikes, from uh, fishermen uh, saying, what's that? <laughs> I'd like to learn more. Um, and then apparently from sharks um, who are visual predators. And if they look up and see something um, the right shape and the right size, it looks like a snack. Uh, but um, this time the the shark got a nasty surprise, got a mouthful of metal, uh, and and fortunately the glider was safe. But they're not always. Uh, it's not all. We're not always so lucky. You talked about the regional uh, glider operation. How do you decide where to send them? Do they regularly patrol a particular area or go all over the Atlantic? We have a combination of approaches. You know, what worked well for us last year was deploying. We put two gliders into the path of Hurricane Florence three days before landfall, one on the, one on the South Carolina side and one on the North Carolina side. We didn't know then where the storm would make landfall with 100% certainty. But we had also just taken a glider out of the water that had sampled the shelf edge uh, between Florida and North Carolina going in and out of the Gulf Stream. And it turns out that's a very useful place because there can be large temperature changes at the surface and down below. Um, it's not only important for understanding the three-dimensional heat content available for hurricanes and where they can intensify, it's really important for getting the ocean dynamics right. The Gulf Stream is just such a strong influence region-wide. 
Well, overarchingly, your goal of your research is to improve the accuracy and, of course, trust in hurricane models. So you mentioned sharing with NOAA or comparing data with the Navy. Does UGA share this research with meteorologists? In other words, is this research level or is this at the consumer level yet? This is research level, but the data are available to everybody. Um, and part of our mission through the Sakura Glider Observatory is to increase the, the use of our data by, um, by scientists, by stakeholders uh, in fisheries, uh, in, in meteorology, and then also, you know, every, the general public. Um, we hope that, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to watch gliders move around on a map, but um, what's even better is seeing the impact they can have, especially, you know, as Georgia residents, you know, these are decisions that affect our everyday lives. Uh, and and uh, we think th- these data can be important, not just in hurricane season, but um, through better prediction of storms in general, and then also through data available to fisheries and other stakeholders and other partners. Yeah, that trust. They, they have to have reliable models, or they have to know from history that this is an accurate prediction. Is that what you're aiming to do? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and ultimately, having good information, improving the information that comes to our emergency managers and decision makers, um, that really has the direct impact on our lives. Um, and we think by improving the hurricane models from the inside, from the ocean up, and that connection between the ocean and atmosphere, um, that that uh, effect can propagate through the forecasting system and ultimately touch people's lives. Catherine Edwards, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. That is Dr. Catherine Edwards, a UGA researcher with us from Savannah. Coming up, how the debate around violence in video games and that connection has changed over time, e.g. become a lot more partisan which is not entirely surprising. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. In the aftermath of mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas, debate over why these massacres keep happening and how to fix them bubbles up again. And again, President Donald Trump pointed to mental illness and video games, as he did in 2018 after the Parkland shooting. We have to do something about uh, maybe what they're seeing and how they're seeing it, and also video games. I'm hearing more and more people say the level of violence on video games is really shaping young people's thoughts. Politicians singling out video games for inspiring violence is not new. It's been happening for decades now. But a recent article in The Atlantic argues that it's becoming increasingly partisan. Ian Bogost wrote that article. He's a game designer himself, author and professor at Georgia Institute of Technology and the Ivan Allen College Distinguished Chair in Media Studies. And he joins me now in the studio. Ian, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So Donald Trump's certainly not the first to make this correlation. Violent video games have incited moral concerns since the 70s. Bring us back then. What did violence in video games look like then? It certainly looked a lot different. Uh, in 1976, there was a coin-op uh, video game, a black-and-white uh, driving game with little stick figure 
uh, characters that you could drive over. It was called Death Race, and it might have been based on a David Cassidy film from the from the previous year. Uh, so it was extremely rudimentary. Uh, but an Associated Press reporter uh, saw the game at a trade show, wrote an article about it, and for the next two years, the New York Times and others covered uh, these supposedly negative effects of uh, of violence in games, uh, even based on that uh, kind of simple specimen. But back from those stick figures, how has the violence depicted in these games transformed since? Well, it's become a lot more realistic as games and uh, computer graphics of all kinds have become a lot more realistic. So if you fast forward to the early 90s, you get games like Doom and Mortal Kombat, uh, which were uh, higher fidelity and also uh, depicted uh, violence uh, more graphically. And then in the 2000s, uh, games of all sorts become almost uh, photorealistic. And uh, in addition, uh, the players of games uh, get older. They they are interested in um, mature adult media of the same kind that you would find on television uh, or in the cinema. Those those uh, Atari and Nintendo kids of the 70s and 80s uh, became adults. They grew up. Right. Unsurprisingly, there have been many studies looking to see if there is indeed a connection between violence in media and violence in real life. So how did the research first emerge and how has it evolved? So according to the psychologists who study media effects, which is what this kind of thing is called, uh, back in uh, the mid-century, television, uh, had a, people had a similar worry about television uh, and about film, and they conducted studies and were really unsure you know, whether or not uh, violent media had any impact on, uh, on people's actions, on violent uh, action in the real world. Uh, and that persisted for a while. Uh, but then suddenly there was a change right, right around the, the 1970s, and uh, those researchers became increasingly uh, certain in their in their publications and in their commentary that yes, there was some sort of connection they felt between uh, violence and media and violence in the world. It wasn't clear that the research, especially on on, on retrospect, uh, really supported that idea. But there was a big shift in the attitude, uh, and then eventually, you know, that sort of conversation that had turned from, well, we're not really sure to we're absolutely certain, uh, it shifted away uh, from television and film and into games. And so games got this sort of this sort of dual force brunt uh, of this new kind of rhetoric, where on the one hand they were unfamiliar, they seemed sort of lurid and maybe undesirable, uh, and then and then secondly uh, they didn't appear to be strongly connected to this sort of uncertainty in the scientific community about whether or not uh, games. Um, uh, had an impact, uh, media and all had an impact on, on violent action. But since then, gun violence and mass shootings have risen, those incidences, along with in this increasingly lifelike graphics of video games and movies. So, you know, we've heard this a lot, you know, well, it's inconclusive, or there's fuzzy research, or we're absolutely certain it does cause violence, or it doesn't. What does further research show about correlation and causation? Yeah, the contemporary uh, research findings uh, strongly suggest that there's no connection, there's no correlation, there's there's no causation. There's just no way of tracing uh, depictions of violence in games or in any media uh, with violent action. So those concerns also did reach uh, Washington, of course, in the early 1990s. Senators Joe Lieberman and Herb Cole, both Democrats, convened hearings about violent video games and their effects. What was the result? Yeah, so this was after Doom and Mortal Kombat in particular, this this game that had like beheadings and things, and it was quite quite startling. And this was the moment when games were sort of becoming uh, a more mature media for uh, for older people, not just for uh, for kids. Uh, these uh, hearings were essentially a threat of sorts to the games industry. Hey, you better figure out a way of regulating yourselves or we're going to intervene. 
And the outcome of that was not a set of, of laws and legislations. That never happened. Uh, but instead, uh, the industry, the games industry, instituted a ratings board, which is the ESRB, kind of like the MPAA does uh, mm -hmm. film ratings. Uh, and they were going to voluntarily rate their games and publicize uh, what ages they were for and what kind of material uh, they contained. Well, it may be designed for adults, but of course, kids were playing it. And 2019 marks 20 years since two students went to their Colorado high school, Columbine, and killed 13 people, 12 students and one teacher wounding 20 others before killing themselves. Now, one of the revelations afterwards was the two shooters played the first-person game, Doom. We'll get a sense of that. Still sounds kind of old world now. Doom was extremely popular in the 90s. What was the conversation surrounding it? So one of the things that was, it's hard to explain, it was so long ago, but it was so different about Doom was this sense of immersion in a first-person world. Uh, and it was gory, but it was also fantastic. These were kind of hell-spawn enemies. They weren't uh, uh, human beings. Um, and that, that sense of, of, uh, of kind of darkness uh, that was in this game was, was something that was... Uh, uh, very difficult uh, for players or even for adults who didn't play the game uh, to look at and understand. Now, in the case uh, of the Columbine shooters, they actually mostly used the game logistically. It wasn't about the violence. They were able to set up uh, a kind of design of the levels that roughly matched uh, uh, the school, which is, is grisly in its own way, uh, but was not necessarily about the violence, more about using it for, uh, for kind of planning up their, their, their physical incursion into the school. Well, popular music came into focus after Columbine 2. Marilyn Manson became the poster boy representing an anti-wholesome counterculture. And he addressed attacks against him in an op-ed for Rolling Stone, writing, America loves to find an icon to hang its guilt on. What else did he make for his case? I mean, I think the most interesting thing about um, Marilyn Manson's response was that he made a response in his own voice, and this was in Rolling Stone, an appropriate venue uh, to communicate not just to his own uh, listeners, uh, but to the world uh, more broadly. It's something that uh, the creators of games and the games industry have not done uh, effectively, have not mounted a response uh, directly to the public to justify what they're doing and why and what impact it might have. They do lobbying, uh, but they don't necessarily do the right kind of public communication to change people's attitudes about the media itself and why they're pursuing it in the first place. Well, that is interesting that we don't hear after video games are attacked for violence, we don't hear from the gaming industry necessarily. It irritates them and they complain about it, uh, but they don't go on you know, late night programs and talk about their work uh, when it comes out and they certainly don't publish uh, op-eds uh, about the subject, at least not very often. Okay, so have others used that defense that culture is being used as a scapegoat for bigger issues and, and a pretext of violence or a subtext of violence? Those who play and make games have always felt that they were scapegoated anytime uh, there's a violent act, that it's connected to games as a way of, of diverting interest in, in other uh, more relevant uh, topics. And yet at the same time, uh, they haven't necessarily responded either in the work or, or outside of the work uh, in a way that says, no, actually, we have something to say about the contemporary uh, environment. One of the big criticisms uh, that has been mounted against these kind of first-person uh, shooter games in recent years that doesn't have to do with violence but is connected to it is the way they, they sort of glorify militarism. There's mm -hmm. a lot of, of war-themed games, especially after after 2000. And so that's another avenue of, uh, of conversation uh, along these same lines. And certainly misogyny. Uh, yeah, when we've got or all sorts of depictions. Unrealistic right? de depictions of uh, Crime, misogyny, you know, games like Grand Theft Auto have been criticized uh, like that for uh, for decades now. 
Well, all right. Do stereotypes and image play into this? With Manson, it might be you know the teenager who wears all black and 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 listens to heavy metal music. That image of a gamer as a loner who sits at home by themselves, himself, I would say more mm-hmm. often, and does not engage with society. Is that accurate? Uh, no, it's not accurate, but it is a part of the game playership. I, I think one of the weirdest things, di- most difficult things to explain to people is that if you ask someone among the general public if they play games, if they're interested in games, often they'll say, no, absolutely not. But then if you say, well, do you play Candy Crush or something like that? Oh, yeah, of course, I play Candy Crush. So there is a sense that this this domain that we call video games uh, is only these violent games, these games for loner men, you know, in their basements, uh, eating uh corn chips and whatever, drinking uh, highly caffeinated beverages. Uh, And even the ones who are doing that are not necessarily playing those games alone. Uh, They're connected to one another online. They might have, uh, you know, very interesting and worthwhile kind of support networks. Of course, they may also be kind of, you know, spewing uh, misogynistic language to one another over their their headsets. So it's not not a simple good or bad matter, uh, but it is a, a caricature of the way that people play games. I'm speaking with Georgia Tech professor Ian Bogost about how video games, mass shootings, and partisan politics are all wound into one. We did ask listeners on social media what they think uh, about video games. Do they cause violence? John says, no more than I thought Tipper Gore was right about heavy metal in the 80s. Noreen, however, disagrees. She said, yes, there is research showing violent video games can make people more physically aggressive, but this is true of people in all countries, not just the U.S. So I'm going to go for the the last bit first. Video games, phenomenally popular worldwide. We're talking about a $130 billion global industry. Huge industry. Players all across the world. Is there a correlation between video games and mass violence or shootings in South Korea or Sweden or other places where games are played? Uh, No, there isn't. And you'll often see uh, supporters of games uh, talk about uh, what they see as the real issue, which is access to to firearms. And if you look at uh, uh, the connection between uh, the amount of money spent on games, the number of people who play games uh, globally, uh, it has nothing to do with the violent crimes that we see, the firearm-related mass shootings. Uh, Whereas if you look at access to uh, semi-automatic weapons, uh, that very much does appear to correlate. Right. So you can have an Australian teenager who is a gamer and aggressive, but they just don't have the same access to guns. But how about that aggression? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I look at these games. I've, they always show them on the screen, right? You know, when yeah. they're doing news reports about right. people's heads being blown off and blood and guts yeah. going everywhere. And, and that immersion, what is that doing? Yeah, well, first I want to say that the design of these studies that shows aggression is, is uh, really quite questionable. And, and many of these have been uh, retracted, or at least the whole methodology behind them has been questioned in recent years, not just around games, but in, in behavioral psychology uh, more generally. Uh, That said, uh, it would be fine for someone to be completely aesthetically or even morally opposed to these sorts of games. Uh, They are somewhat ghastly, and no no one's saying you have to play them, uh, just as you don't have to go see the new Tarantino film uh, if you don't want to. Uh, And so that idea that uh, this is a a media option, this is something that uh, that people are creating uh, and that players can choose uh, to consume doesn't uh, mean that it's required. Uh, And it's certainly uh, perfectly acceptable and maybe even reasonable to say, I actually want nothing to do with these kind of games. So we have seen since then, you know, uh, 
Virginia Tech, uh, Sandy Hook, Orlando, Parkland, Las Vegas, most recently Gilroy, El Paso and Dayton shootings. When did it begin to become a partisan argument? We know that, you know, Lieberman, Cole, uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was a senator, proposing that video games be looked at in a different way. When did that shift? Yeah, Hillary Clinton had nothing good to say about games in the mid in the mid 2000s, even compared to to pornography and other sin industries. Uh, I think the shift happened after Sandy Hook and then accelerated uh, after Parkland. Uh, After Sandy Hook, we first started to see the National Rifle Association point to games directly as a, I I think, as a diversionary tactic. Well, what about these? What about these games? You're talking about access to guns, but we're all about responsible access to guns. And maybe the depiction of firearms in video games is the problem. Uh, And then after uh, Parkland, uh, as we heard Donald Trump uh, pick that up directly, it's really quite unusual uh, to to hear uh, a sitting president uh, talk about uh, video games in that direct uh, way. And, and you know, the, the way that he did so was persuasive to people in the sense that he said something like, you know, I'm hearing these things, which, of right. course, was true. Mm-hmm. That is what people were talking about. Uh, and that, in, I think, emboldened uh, others. And then after El Paso in particular, uh, that was the talking point. I mean, almost hours later, uh, it's really about video games. Well, where are Democrats on this now? Did they stop being outraged by video game violence or what changed? Uh, they appear to have stopped pursuing the kind of legislation about control of, uh, of video games and video game sales and punishment for selling these games to minors and so on. That's partly because there was a 2011 Supreme Court decision uh, that that uh, upheld uh, throwing out a California law that had tried to do so, and that's sort of the uh, the, the uh, First Amendment moment uh, for games. So that legislation became infeasible. Uh, but more than that, I think that the Democrats just, uh, they became uninterested uh, in games. Hillary Clinton seems to have wanted to score some sort of political uh, victory uh, by, by singling them out. Uh, but today's Democrats uh, mostly are saying, oh, this is ridiculous. This isn't about video games. It's about uh, lax gun laws. It's about domestic terrorism. Uh, so th- what I see them doing today, what I see Democrats doing today is using games to pivot back uh, to the issues uh, that they're more concerned with. So is then video game debate, is this just political maneuverings, or, or are there real repercussions possibly for the gaming industry? Uh, well, the gaming industry is, is quite successful, and uh, I don't think that in some ways, any time these things get get publicized, uh, more games uh, get sold. Even Death Race sold more games in 1976 after people were publishing uh, articles about uh, uh, what an affront uh, it was. Uh, so the game industry is fine, at least in terms of their sales. In terms of their their cultural role, uh, how much people accept this as a medium that's that's viable and kind of well-rounded, uh, like film and television and, and novels and so forth are, uh, there certainly is uh, uh, something uh, significant that's lost uh, with these conversations. Ian Bogos, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Ian Bogos, he is professor of interactive computing at Georgia Tech, an author, game designer, and a distinguished chair in media studies. His article, Video Game Violence, is now a partisan issue, was published earlier this month in The Atlantic. As we head into the break, we're going to leave you with Marilyn Manson's The Dope Show. On social media, we did ask if video games cause violence. Matthew says, of course not. Study after study has proven that's not the case. Millions of people across the planet play the same games as Americans do, yet only Americans seem to have a problem with mass shootings. Mitch writes, my kids have played video games for years, never saw any violent results, although a little cranky sometimes after a long gaming session. 
can't help you out there, Mitch. But thank you so much for commenting. And you can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're also on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us on secondthought at gpb.org. Now stay with us, a debut novel that dismantles the norms of detective fiction. We're going to speak with the author of Disappearing Earth, Julia Phillips. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stick around for that and more of On Second Thought. And we are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. You're hearing a recording of a traditional dance performance by an indigenous community from the Kamachka Peninsula at the very northeastern edge of Russia. There are no roads or rail lines to the area, surrounded by mountains and the sea. The remote region can be reached only by water or by air. And in Julia Phillips' new novel, it is the site where two young Russian sisters vanish one afternoon after walking along the seashore. Disappearing Earth is not a mystery or true crime novel. There's no detective discovering long-held secrets among the townsfolk, no red herrings or final reveal, but a series of stories about women and girls affected by and connected to the panic surrounding the loss. Julia Phillips' Disappearing Earth was recently named to the Center for Fiction's 2019 first novel long list. She's going to be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday, September 1st, and with us now from New York to talk about it. Julia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you've studied Russian since you were a teenager, studied in Moscow. Why set this story in Kamchatka, a place many people have never even heard of? Well, to be honest, I hadn't really heard of it before I started researching a place to set a novel. After I studied Russian for so long and studied in Moscow, as you mentioned, I knew I wanted to go back to the country to write fiction about it. Writing fiction has always been my my ambition. Uh, so I started searching for a great setting. And I didn't know quite what that would be, but I had some parameters in mind. I wanted it to be someplace beautiful. If I was going to move to a place to live, I wanted it to be someplace picturesque, ideally. And someplace that was contained or a little smaller than the huge urban sprawl of Moscow. And also someplace connected to American history in some way or to Russia-American relations. I thought that could be a good entry point for me to come into a region with. Uh-huh. And when I learned about Kamchatka, it was all those things and much more. Well, and I've seen pictures of it. It looks absolutely stunning, but also bleak in some ways. I mean, there's a beautiful volcano, but there's just a vast area. And it used to be a naval base for the for the Russians. So is that the connection between America and Russia? It is. It was a very uh, pivotal region during the Soviet Union. So for much of the 20th century, it was the base for the Pacific Naval Fleet, the Soviet Pacific Naval Fleet. And it was therefore closed to foreigners. No foreigners could enter at all. And, all, and Russians could only enter if they had special government permission. So I would, as an American, have been allowed to go there until the after the fall of the Soviet Union. And it was so highly significant and loomed so large in the American, especially American military imagination at that time. 
So it's interesting on this peninsula, which in a way is on the edge of the earth, so open to the elements, but there is a sense of being enclosed. You know, there's, I guess it was a crucible on some level for so long, and it becomes the, the, the enclosure for this book, Disappearing Earth. We have Alyona. I hope I'm saying that properly. <laughs> uh, she's 11, begrudgingly looking after her younger sister, Sophia. Can you unwind what happens that summer afternoon? Absolutely. So the book opens, as you said, with those two sisters, very young, on the shore at the city center. Uh, Kamchatka has one capital city and one really kind of urban center where most people, almost half the peninsula's population lives. And they're right in the heart of that city, talking to each other and hanging out. It's during their school vacation. And they end up meeting a man who has sprained his ankle on the beach there and they help him back to his car. And in thanks, he offers them a ride home to their apartment and they accept. But when they get in the car, he ends up driving past their home and he keeps going. He tells them that he needs a little more help from them. And that's where the chapter ends for us. That's where we see that summer afternoon end. We don't know what's happened to them, but we know they're not taken home. Yeah. And what unfolds month by month, chapter by chapter, is not uh, forensics experts coming out and looking for the girls or a detective, but but it's about how their disappearance affects the women and girls in this place. There's there's gossip and judgment of the girl's single working mother. You know, why would they get into a stranger's car? There's a curfew. There's suspicion of, of a lot of different men. But no case is revealed. Did you set out to confound that very well-trod formula? I think I set out to reflect how increasingly it seems to me true crime actually unfolds. I think I'm someone who's a huge fan of you know, Law & Order SVU. I love a detective novel. I love a crime thriller. Um, but increasingly, as I read the news or as I reflected on how crime or violence appears in my own life and in the life of people around me, it seems not to be a contained narrative of a victim, a perpetrator, and a detective. These sort of a tight focus on three people and all the breaks in the case are through those three people or through one person, a detective. It seemed to me more and more and still seems to me that how crimes unfold or how violence uh, ripples through a community affects the lives of many people and many people play a part in solving it or muddying the water um, having it remain unsolved. There are so many moments of happenstance or chance or circumstance that drive the direction an investigation goes. And so I wanted to reflect that. Yeah. And we see some of the vulnerabilities that show up for people around that uh, two 13-year-old girls forbidden to see each other because one of their her mother is not married she's afraid um, or the other mother is afraid there's a controlling boyfriend monitoring his girlfriend's every move while she's away at university and these characters are all loosely connected but but so far apart there is there is this I don't know, way that they, they want to connect. In fact, one says that the closer you get to someone, the more you lied. What is, what is the price of connection for, for some of these women? It's challenging. Connecting with each other creates a lot of vulnerability and a lot of risk for many of them. And yet, 
over the course of the book as we meet more and more characters and begin to see the ways that they overlap and the information that one knows and another doesn't or the clue that one might have if only they knew the context that the other one could provide, we see that engaging in that risky connection is ultimately what will allow this community the chance to heal, allow these women an opportunity to move forward. And, mm. and that also very much reflects to me what uh, I perceive in life, that, that connection, empathetic connection is so challenging and yet so necessary. Yeah. And there are other divisions here, geography and ethnicity. The two mm. sisters are white Russians. They're young. Uh, characters observed that their disappearance was treated very differently than that of a 18-year-old woman, Lilia, an Even young woman. First, a little bit more on the Even people. Yes. Uh, so the Even people are an indigenous Siberian group. There are indigenous Kamchatkins who have been in Kamchatka, the peninsula itself, for tens of thousands of years. And there are some characters in the book who are, for, are, for example, Koryak or Edelman. Those are indigenous Kamchatkan peoples who have been on that territory for a very, very long time. Kamchatka was colonized by ethnic Russians, so ethnically Slavic people from the sort of Western Russia, more European regions in the 1700s, and Aven people also arrived in Kamchatka, so indigenous Siberian people, in uh, around the 1800s. So there have been these waves of migration into the peninsula uh, that have brought very different ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds and histories into, as you said, this crucible. Yeah. Um, did I say it right? Is it Aven or Iven? <laughs> I say a Ven. Okay. Yes. All right. So there is this one character I just absolutely fell in love with, Shusha. Um, she is, she, they call her at college, you know, she goes away to the big city college. They call her one of the herder's children. But there's a description of herding life in her family on the tundra that is just startling. Where, where did you get that? I am so glad that you love her because I love her too. She's one of my favorite characters. And uh, her experience, her memories of hurting, a lot of the research I did for her story came through embedding with a group of herders in Kamchatka myself. I, I spent um, a few weeks traveling with a group of reindeer herders in the center of the peninsula. They were extraordinarily generous to me and and really went above and beyond in opening up their lives and their work and the challenge of their day-to-day -day and letting me witness that and take notes. It, it was a really special thing that informed so much the experience of Susha in recalling, for example, that character, her grandparents, her father are herders and move nomadically with a, a herd of their own reindeer through the peninsula and have done so for generations. Yeah, it's extraordinary. We're talking with Julia Phillips about her new novel, Disappearing Earth. She's going to be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday, September 1st. Well, this brings up a difference in the old ways and contemporary life in new Russia, you know, post um, the post-Soviet Russia. And there are some people who are nostalgic for the Soviet times. In fact, one says this could never have taken place in Soviet times. You know, the, the abduction of the girls after it becomes really big news in the 
the city. What is going on there? I think it's hard for an American to read that and think, really? You you, you liked life in the Soviet times? What was the appeal? <laughs> yeah, and it's fascinating because it is such a prevalent, and I would say uh, for a generation of people who recall the Soviet Union, a mainstream point of view, a, a desire to return to the Soviet Union, um, I think it is very, it, it might be easier to understand in Kamchatka than it is in many other regions uh, For from an American point of view. Kamchatka enjoyed a lot of national prominence during the Soviet Union. It was a military base and its economy was bolstered by that. It had food when other people didn't have food. It had electricity when other people didn't have electricity, other regions in the country. And it was, uh, as I heard many reindeer herders actually refer to it, it was a golden age mm. of stability in recent memory. And that stability completely vanished with the fall of the Soviet Union. An economy was taken away, a national identity was lost. It's something that was unusual for me um, and hard to picture. And yet, as I learn more and more recently about the the fallout from the Civil War in the U.S., I understand more and more how the feeling of loss for those who were in power can continue for generations. You knew once or you're told by your parents that once you were on top and you don't feel on top now and you want to go back to that time. Yeah, uh, another character, actually maybe the same one says, now we're overrun with tourists, migrants, mm. native. This sounds like that could be, you know, apart from the Soviet history, be happening in a part of rural America that was on the coal belt or the rust belt. Is there, did you recognize that when you were there in Kamchatka? Yes, and indeed I would say... <laughs> Sometimes to my detriment, it was yeah. the only thing I, I recognized. I Coming from an American filter, being someone who grew up in America, whose home is in America, so much of what I perceived in Russia and in Kamchatka was contextualized by my American understanding. And when I was in Kamchatka, seeing the... Um, tensions, the particular tensions of this place and really unusual tensions of this place being a, a territory that had been totally closed and then in 1991 became open, that is a fascinating and unusual perspective. And yet the the nostalgia that people were voicing, the um, racism that people were voicing, all of that seemed to me to be profoundly reflective of and parallel to the America that I know. There's also, it seems like a the difference in the the two young Russian girls who disappear and this other uh, native girl, Lilia. There is a assumed purity, right? When you're, mm -hmm. you know you're a young girl, you're you no experience in the world. Yet Lilia was looking for a way out. She was sexually active. You know that that's the assumption that everybody makes that she found her sort of ticket out of here. Although others have other theories, and in there's a way that women here are considered. Uh, even even the witness, the one witness to the seeing the two girls get into a car, is considered untrustworthy. Mm. And I don't know if that is a condition that are you just reflecting on the condition of women in general or in this kind of confined place? 
To me, it is a condition of women in general in uh, a society that is a patriarchy. Russia is an extremely, contemporary Russia is an extremely patriarchal culture. And I would say that America too, or at least the America in which I live, is an extremely patriarchal culture. Um, in that men are in positions of power, men are in positions of authority, and women are continually told that they are less than or or have different talents that don't include uh, leadership or uh, the ability to be in control of their own lives. To me, that is, is very much a, a constant in the U.S. And I think certainly thinking about crime narratives, we see it so frequently, both in fiction and in fact, um, how victims of violent crimes, gender-based violence, are second-guessed and uh, minimized, and how those women around them are told over and over again, see, this is what happens if you don't do X, Y, and Z correctly. You need to be more careful. You need to be more safe. You, Violence can happen to you at any time. I feel so unfair asking you this question when we have 30 seconds left. Okay, maybe a minute. What is it, what it's like for you, you know, a lifelong Russophile to witness what's going on now with evidence of Russian interference in American elections? Can you wrap us up with that? Yeah, it has been really fascinating and really illuminating. And I think it's taken the, um, it, it's turned a crush into a more mature appreciation. Hmm. For so long, I loved Russia in great part because I thought, oh, America and Russia are so similar, we're, but we're two sides of the same coin. We've, we've developed in these different ways to the same tensions of the Cold War. Now I look and say, oh, America and Russia are so similar to similar. In fact, we're intermingled in a way that I don't want to be as an American. I would prefer some more separation. <laughs> Well, Julia, I want to thank you so much. We're going to leave you with the, the remotest, iciest music I could think of. This is Sigur Ros, as we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Julia Phillips will be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival to discuss her debut novel, Disappearing Earth, on Sunday, September 1st. You're probably going to be hearing a lot about it. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our senior producer is Amy Kiley. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks for spending some time with us and On Second Thought.